Let's pray. Lord, we invite you, we ask by your Holy Spirit, you be with us. I pray, God, that you'd reveal to us your mission for us. God, please forgive us as we have forgotten that we are your hands and feet in this world. And God, that we have abdicated our, that role to others. God, forgive us for being passive in our faith, passive in how you act, ask us to live. And I pray, Holy Spirit, right now you'd come, you would challenge, you would, you would uh, convict, you would um, encourage, you would help us to be on mission for you in this world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, for those of you visiting with us this morning at UCC, we want to say welcome. We want to say a special welcome to Pastor Chris and Allison. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I was told by Connor, uh, Chris's uh, son, to be good this morning and not do the normal stuff that I do. And I told him, fat chance. And um, no, I'm not. I'm kidding. Uh, this morning, uh, actually, I actually want to say one more thank you. I want to be, say a big thank you to Pastor Jeremy for teaching for the last couple of weeks. It has been so nice to hear him and to hear his, uh, how he, his passions and how he teaches. But just to be clear on something, he teaches for 30 minutes. Forget about that. That's not me. And so I'm back and get, buckle up. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but it's been great to have Pastor Jeremy and, and, and his teaching uh, for this last couple of weeks. I want to start a new series this morning, and I want to talk to you about mission. And uh, I'm going to talk to you about that for the next couple of weeks and kind of unpack what I feel like the Lord is kind of saying to me. Uh, the title of the series is called Missio Day, and this morning's uh, teaching is called What's Your Mission? But let me give you a little background here about this church and uh, what, kind of, what God's done. Every year, um, I kind of go to the Lord and I ask the Lord to give me a theme or an idea that I use for my teaching throughout the year. And so when we first planted UCC, year one, God gave me a word for UCC, and guess what that word was? Basically, survive. Uh, let's see if this church can actually make a go of it. Is actually going to work? Because when we first planted, we had no idea. We had no idea what God was going to do. We had no idea how God was going to show up. And we were so delighted to say that we survived up until now. But who knows what tomorrow is going to bring, right? Year two, and you'll remember I taught about this in September of last year, was this idea of community. But I asked the Lord, like, what is it you want me to teach this year, and how do you want it to kind of uh, go? And really what the Lord said to me is what he really wanted to do is he wanted to kind of knit us into a community. We had survived the first year, but we had survived, and uh, we had grown, we had thrived. And really what God was saying is that he wanted to bring us together as, as, as a family of believers. And uh, if you recall my teaching, that's really one of the predominant themes that culminated at our church-wide retreat that we had uh, at the end of April, which was for those of you who were there, was just such an special, incredible experience, which we were doing again this year as well, too, because it was and is uh, an amazing way for the body of Christ to be the body of Christ. Well, this past summer, I went to the Lord, I prayed again, and I said, God, what is it that you want us to kind of learn this year? What is it, um, what function do you want us to kind of uh, to flow into, and what is it you want us to kind of be? And the word that God gave to me was this idea of mission. And he said, this is really what I want you to teach this year. For the next year, as I, as I kind of prepare my series, this is actually the word, the theme, the idea that will be at the back of my head. Now, for those of you who come from more of a traditional church background, the phrase missio dei means sense to you, makes sense to you. But I want to explain it to those perhaps that you uh, are not familiar with it. Missio dei is a Latin theological term that can be translated as the mission of God or mission of God. 
The church and the mission of the church are not our inventions. Therefore, we simply confess that we join God in what he is doing. This is really important to understand that when we talk about church, there can be almost a passive abstract understanding of it. Oh, the church, right? That's what it is. But what you have to understand is that we look through the Bible in the Old and in the New Testament and the first 300 years of the church, the early church we call it, this idea of church was really God's idea. And as we function on a Sunday morning with teaching, with worship, with kids and all that, with family, that's actually been happening for thousands of years. And sometimes we have this idea that we think the church was constructed in the last hundred years. That's actually not been the case, that we live in a rich tradition of how we kind of understand church and what God's called us to. And so Missio Dei is a way of kind of uh, capturing that. It goes on to say this, as a church finds itself in a new position in society, she will need to examine her self-identity. If the church is to survive in a postmodern culture, it is necessary that she recover her missionary identity. Now, here's something that's interesting, right? Over the last 100 years, there has been a, a predominant way of understanding church, and we have operated that. And that is this idea that church and culture were pretty close together. We have seen a shift over the last couple of decades where church and culture are no longer even close. And what uh, Missio Dei teaches us is that we have to recover our missionary identity. Now, let me just say something here. As a pastor for a few decades, I've gone on missions trips, right? We, we are, people call it missions experience, right? Where you go overseas to some uh, cultural context and you serve there. Now, what I find most interesting as a pastor who observes these teams is you'll take somebody from this context who perhaps may not be as excited or alive in their faith, and you take them over in, in, uh, across the way, uh, whether it's uh, you know African uh, context, Asian context, whatever it would be, and they just become like super Christian. You know, they're serving, they're sharing the gospel and all that, and then you bring them back to Canada, they're like, you know, it's like, wait, what, where's the disconnect? What we have done is we have taught that missions takes place somewhere else and not right here. And the thing is, though, is that's not really how the Bible talks about it, nor is it how God has kind of created what we are actually meant to be. So this idea of missio day actually is a bit more uh, complex. Out of that word, about a decade ago, this word missional came up. I remember one time a pastor came up to me, and this was about like nine years ago, and said, are you missional? And I said, oh, actually, I don't know what kind of tires my car has on it. I don't know if, I don't, I don't know what that means, right? And, and this word get, kind of got thrown around a lot, and, and uh, pastors tend to love to use these words, and nobody really knows what they mean. You know, it's like that moment in uh, Princess Bride where the guy says, I don't think that word means what you think it means, right? Everyone was using it, but nobody knew what it meant, right? It's taken a few years to kind of figure out what missional means. And what it really means is it's kind of recovering this missionary identity of the church. Now, let me give you kind of an explanation of the word missional. It's a proper understanding of missional begins with recovering a missionary understanding of God. By his very nature, God is a sent one who takes the initiative to redeem his creation, Missional represents a significant shift in the way we think about the church. As the people, as the people of a missionary God, we ought to engage the world the same, we, the same way he does, by going out rather than just reaching out. When the church is in mission, it is the true church. So this idea of missional is trying to recover what the church used to be. Now, understand something, right? Church, uh, church culture, history, it goes on a pendulum, back and forth, right? Um, you know, 50 years ago, this was the emphasis. 20 years ago, this was the emphasis. It goes back and forth. 
missional is this concept that's saying, listen, the church was meant to be this group of people that go out into the world to redeem it. What has happened over the last, especially 50 years, um, actually some uh, historians would say 100 years ago, is there was a shift within church culture. And that shift, I would say to you, came from money. And here's what I mean by that. As the church has started to kind of form, began to kind of take, um, solidify in our culture, the resources became more available to it. And what would happen is people would now pay pastors, professional Christians, myself, to do the work of God. And they would say, well, we don't want to do this, but pastor, here's, you know, here, we're going to pay now. You go do it, right? And, and oftentimes that's what's happened as a pastor. People will come to me and say, this would be really great if you did this in the community. And I'm like, oh, great, another thing to me to do. Awesome. That's, I need more of that, right? Uh, and so what we've done is we have abdicated our understanding of the church, and we've said, pastors, professional Christians, now go do it. Now, let me, let me just, before I go too far from that, understand something. Historically, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the church of the community believers have always had resources set aside for those God calls into uh, heightened leadership within a church. That's actually within the context. But in the last hundred years, there has now been an abdication of people saying, oh, my pastor will do it. Like I have this conversation a lot. People will text or email me and say, oh, pastor, I was having this conversation at work, at school, and I wish you were there. And my response is, well, I wish I was there too. I like people, but why do you need me to be there? And the response is, well, they asked a question that I didn't know the answer to. And I said, I would think to myself, oh, I get it. You think Christianity is a bunch of uh, statements cognitively in in your brains that's going to help someone understand God. That's not the gospel, actually. That's one way of talking about it, but that's not necessarily the gospel. So over the last hundred years, we have had this idea of what we call attractional church. Let me kind of read this to you. The attractional church seeks to reach out to the culture and draw people into the church. But this practice only works where there's no significant cultural shift is required when moving outside to inside the church. Now let me stop there for a second. So what this statement is saying is that 50 years ago, if you invited someone from your work or your school to church, the culture that they were living in and the culture the church was, was very close together. And so you can invite them, and they may not know the songs or what's going on, but they would have some understanding. Well, that's no longer the case anymore. That if you invite someone to church, they are having to have a conversation with you, like, what's going on? What are we, what's going on here now? And, and why are we doing this? And what songs? And, and like, there's more of a conversation of trying to explain what we're trying to do and who we're trying to be. And that's a cultural shift that's taking place. Let me go on. As, and as Western culture has become increasingly post-Christian, the attractional church has lost its effectiveness. The West looks more like a cross-cultural missionary context in which attractional churches are self-defeating. As a result, people cease to be missional and instead leave that work to the clergy. Attractional church creates an audience who is passive. So attractional church was this idea that we're going to build bigger buildings and have like playgrounds and clowns and we're going to give away pizza and skateboards and, and come with here this church, we have this great speaker or look, we have this big explosion that's going to happen or we're going to talk about this and we've said people come to the church and that's okay, but the problem is though is that doesn't really fulfill what God's called us to do as being the people going out into the culture as the church. Um, there's a guy named David Horrocks. It's difficult to find um, uh, biblical, uh, no, sorry, not biblical, sorry, uh, 
cultural teachings in, in a Canadian context. A lot of the stuff that we get is American or European, but so it's always interesting when we find a Canadian writer talking about the church context. Uh, David Horrocks uh, wrote this article a few years ago called The Missional Church, A Model for Canadian Churches. And uh, of course, for me, it's like, okay, great, we have a Canadian context. This is what David Horrocks says. The church should stop mimicking the surrounding culture and become an alternative community with a different set of beliefs, values, and behaviors. Ministers would no longer engage in marketing. Churches would no longer place primary emphasis on programs to serve members. The traditional ways of evaluating successful churches, bigger buildings, more people, bigger budgets, larger ministerial staff, new and more programs to serve members would be rejected. New yardsticks would be the norm. To what extent is our church a sent community in which each believer is reaching out to his community? To what extent is our church impacting the community with a Christian message that challenges the values of our secular society? So what he's saying, and what many people are saying as well too, that inviting people to church is fine, and it's good, and please hear me very clearly. I think this Sunday morning gathering has a, uh, has a meaning and a context but if this is the only faith context you have throughout the week, there's a problem. And so what he's saying, and what many uh, sociologists are saying is this, is that Christians no longer look to the traditional church for this. So I was at a conference about five years ago in Atlanta. It was a small conference, about 17,000 pastors. So it was a pretty big one. And like this is a conference where you have like some huge Christian names like Andy Stanley and Craig Rochelle and, and like some of the big names, right? One speaker got up and it was funny because he said something and I could tell that some of the other pastors were like, oh, I was a little uncomfortable. But he said this, pastors, if you're going to do a building program or if you're going to expand your building, you better do it within the next 10 years because the generation is coming up that doesn't care anymore about a building. So he said, if you go to your congregation, you say, we need $5 million, $7 million, $10 million to build this building, the boomer generation is like, yes, we like edifices, we like buildings, that's great. But anybody 40 and under is now saying, $7 million for a building. I think we could probably do something different with that resources, couldn't we? Is there people who need help? Is there poor? Is there people in our community? Can we use those resources differently? So what the speaker was saying is, according to cultural studies and according to Christians shifting in nature, there is now no longer people who care how big a building is or what it contains. The performance is less uh, attractional to people because it's a different culture altogether. And so what David Horrocks is saying and what other people are saying is that we have to remember something, that the church has always been the church. One guy said to me one time, as I was planting this church, he said, you better have a great website. We didn't have a website until eight months after we planted our church, right? It wasn't, it wasn't important to us. It was, it's, it's important somewhat. But he said, basically, he was saying to me that the entire gospel and whatever the church was going to be was based upon my website or our Twitter feed. I don't even know if we have Twitter. And our, what, like social media is fine. It's okay. But what about the Holy Spirit? Do we forget that we serve a God that, that has been in creation, has worked in contexts that are even more um, different than this? So like, we don't have to always rely upon these methods or methodologies. That the church is God's and that we partner with God in what he's doing. So the missional context is about saying, okay, I don't have to have people come to my church, although eventually that's Christian communities where you want to bring them, but that I go out into the world as a missionary and have these conversations with people. So in school, at work, at family, and friends, you are a missionary sent by God because that's, that's how he's kind of created everything. Now, before I go on, you have to remember, like, 
I'm not saying missional, and we're not becoming a missional church. We're not going to use that label, but I do think there's some value to it. But there's also some dangers to a missional misrepresentation. So when I first planted UCC, I went out and I spoke with people who are creating missional communities, a couple in this area here. And I came away from these conversations very, very disturbed because there was some kind of overreaching in regards to what missional was. So, for example, they saw missional as acts of charity. Now, let me say something real quick here. Traditionally, the church has been, historically, we were the primary caregivers of the widows and orphans. Those who didn't have uh, anything, the church was at the very forefront of that. And that's certainly true in other contexts. Um, and so in, 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 the, in the continent of Africa, for example, there are some countries, and the UN and the World Health Organization is recognizing this, but churches are the primary um, medical givers in those countries. I think I saw one statistic that one country, 75% of the medical care in that country was by a church. So that's great over in that context. But in North America, you need to understand something, that charity and charitable work is no longer a Christian thing. That there are people you work with who don't love Jesus, but may be out there fundraising for this organization or running for that or walking for this. They are very engaged in this. And so what was a primary indicator of Christian beliefs and values is no longer that. So just because you help out with the soup kitchen or you gather uh, clothing for this, for this clothing drive, that doesn't self-identify as a Christian. And that has happened over the last 10 years, actually, that, there are, that the culture has become more socially aware. And that's actually a really good thing. Please don't, understand, don't misunderstand me. The more people are aware that there are widows and orphans and people who need help, and the more people helping in that, that's fantastic. But as Christians, we can't use that as a label or identifier because it's no longer separate from what everyone else is doing. The second danger I've noticed within missional is missional is a personal agenda. I remember speaking to a couple who moved into an inner core, and they were reaching out to this community. I thought it was fantastic, right? Not only do they believe this, but they've moved there. I was like, okay, this is great. But then I began to have the conversation with them. I said, so what do you do? Well, we have dinner. I'm like, I like dinner. This is good, okay? What else do you do? Well, that's it. I'm like, what? Well, we just have dinner. We build a relationship. That's important. But do you share the gospel, your testimony? You have a Bible study? Anything of faith? No, 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 not yet. I said, oh, okay, well, it's new. How long have you been doing it? Five years. I'm like, I think now might be a good time. Ah, I'm just throwing it out there, you know? But here's the idea. What I began to realize when I began to speak with them, and I don't, please miss, don't miss it. I don't mean to make fun of them, although I am, but I don't mean to. Um, what, I, what came from the conversation was, is they were more interested in befriending these people, and that's fine, but the gospel didn't, kind of find a way to in there as well too and that was a bit of a problem so it was a personal agenda not really a missional kind of uh, christ-centered thing and then finally missional is a rejection of the body of christ same couple um same context of group, groupings of couples and they're reaching out they're they're, they're having community gardens or they're doing all these things great things nothing wrong with that but they weren't br- bringing these people into a faith community whether they're creating that own faith community One of the things you find that's very interesting in the Bible is that God calls a group of people together to fulfill his mission. We call it the church, but spiritual family, however you want to call it, God does that. Whether in Corinth or Ephesus, I told you about that Iraqi church planner uh, I met last summer. It's it's happening all over. God calls people together, groups of people, in order to have uh, his mission on on this planet. And so missional is great, but there can be some overreaching for it. So when we talk about missional, this is how we look at a balance of it, right? So the first part of it is always this idea of gathered. 
And gathered is basically God calling uh, men and women all across the the, uh, the globe to faith in Christ. Right, that's the first part, and that's important. Right, the gathered part is important, but the second part is scattered. Right, so Sunday morning we come together and we gather. And we worship, and hopefully some teaching will expand the Bible and God's mission. And, and we come together, we talk, we visit. That's the gathered part. That's really important, right? But then the scattered part is equally important. That is you from going out from here into your world, into your context, and letting the light of Christ shine from you. And if you're in school, or if you're in, at work, or family members, whatever it would be, you would now go out into the world with Christ empowered in you to let the gospel shine. That's the scattered part. So the missional balance has to be gathered, scattered. And if you, by the way, cut any one of these out, you get imbalanced. So if it's, we're only coming together Sunday morning, huddling together, oh, we just survived another week. Oh, hopefully Jesus comes back soon. Put on that Christian music and get, get, let's, let's watch that teaching on the, online. That's, that's really good. If that's the only part, that's, that's imbalance. But if the other part is, hey, we're going out in the world and we're going to do some great stuff and all that, but then we don't bring them back together gathered, that's a problem too. So whenever we talk about missional, we have to have the balance, the tension. And why do we have to have the tension? Because God identifies that tension, says this is important. These both are important. So whenever we talk about mission, we have to talk about in and through. Right? These three words are going to be the three words that are going to kind of guide us in the next two weeks when we talk about mission. God's plan for humanity starts with the human. Spoiler alert, it's you. Right? But God's mission first starts with his transformative work in your life, then moves to that transforming life, transforming others. Hear me very clearly on this, okay? God will not use you in any context until he's worked through you. He wants to first reveal himself to you, begin to transform you internally. I talk to a lot of young pastors. Young pastors make me chuckle. And the reason they make me chuckle is because they see all these other pastors who have been doing things for like 20 years. They want to be that. They want to be in the spotlight. They want to have those big churches. They want to be that, right? And I'm like, okay, I get that. But what you don't realize is they took 20 years of God preparing that person for that. And so whatever God wants to do in you, uh, through you, he first wants to do in you. The gospel first must take hold in your own heart and life before he'll use you out in the world. And so some of you are feeling frustrated because like, ah, I just want these people to know Jesus or I want my coworkers or I want this. And God's like, you need to stop for a second. Because I need to speak to you. I need to speak in you. I need to transform you internally before we do that. So when we talk about mission, we're going to have to talk about this word, sanctification. Now, it's a word that we don't have a lot of usage today, but it's a word the Bible uses all over the place. So let me define sanctification for you this morning. The generic meaning of sanctification is the state of proper functioning. To sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for use instead by, intended by its designer. A pen is sanctified when used to write. In the theological sense, things are sanctified when they are used for the purpose God intends. A human being is sanctified, therefore, when he or she lives according to God's design and purpose. Sanctification is God's personal mission in you. So today what we're going to look at is what God wants to do in you. And next week we're going to look at what God wants to do through you. But before we get to the through part, you've got to look at the in part. And that's the process of sanctification. And we and when we talk about sanctification, it's a complex topic, and I want to kind of simplify it to you in two steps. Okay, that's my challenge this morning. I want to kind of simplify this word sanctification. When we talk about sanctification, the first step for it is we must die to ourselves. And that seems like the odd place to start, but it's kind of where the Bible starts with it. 
Whatever God will do through you must always be secondary, secondary to whatever you will allow him to do in you. The key phrase is there, allow him. When we encounter Jesus, when we encounter our Savior, we, have to, we are encountered with a different lifestyle, a different set of values, a different belief system, and we have to say to ourselves, we must submit to that. When Jesus speaks with Nicodemus, he uses a phrase that we use as well, but we may not understand what he's saying. Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless you want to be born again, you can't follow me. Now, the word born again is like, oh, okay, I get that. To be born again means something has died and now is born again, born anew. And this is a constant theme within the New Testament uh, teaching of it, is that your mission for him will be in direct proportion to his work in you. And so what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 12 is that, very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's this constant theme throughout the Bible where God is saying to us, before I can use you, before you can, you can fully, be, fully realize what I want to do in you, you must first die to yourself. And I want to show you something here, okay? This is not just a one-time Jesus kind of throwing it out there. It is a predominant theme of the New Testament. And the reason it's the predominant theme of the New Testament, it is the predominant way that we understand salvation. You cannot be saved unless you need a savior. On uh, Monday and Tuesday of this past week, I was invited to be a part of a roundtable discussion with pastors from across Canada. There's about eight of us, and uh, a guy from Vancouver, Winnipeg, my good friend Dominic Russo in Laval, Quebec, and, and a couple others. And we were sitting around the table, and we were talking about being a pastor. And there's, we were all 40-something, so we've been in ministry for a little bit long time. It was it was really special because sometimes when pastors get to talk in a safe environment, it's, it's, it's actually really healthy and we kind of talk about things that, uh, that we normally wouldn't have a chance to talk about. And what was interesting about that is one of the guys said is that one of my biggest problems as a pastor is helping the church to understand that they are the church. And we all sat around going, yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. Like, we all got that as pastors, but it's a really weird thing to think about. That basically what we as pastors are trying to do is to help to understand you're the church, right? This building is not the church, it's a theater, right? And I'm not the church, I'm a piece of the church, but I'm not the church. That you're the church. And because you're the church, you are called by God to go into the world to be let his light shine. And so... This idea of dying to yourself is not just an abstract concept. It is literally the way we adopt the kingdom of heaven. It's the way that we understand salvation. It's the way we understand God's plan for our lives. And the only way you can adopt God's plan for your lives is if you surrender your plan for your life. And that is the problem within our Western culture, North American society. Many of us don't want to surrender our lives to God. And this is where the nominal Christian comes from, is we have now come to the point where we're like, I don't want to die for you, Lord, because I just really want, I, I'd rather live my own life. I remember growing up in the church, and I, can, I, I say this to you, around 14, I remember thinking to myself, I don't really want to give God my entire life. Because I look at all the people in this church, and they look pretty miserable to me. 
It's like they're going to like a, like a funeral or something or some sort of medical exam that nobody wants to go to. Like they do not look happy. And literally one guy said to me, and I remember this, he goes, I don't go to church with more than $20 in my pocket. That way I can't give more than that. I thought to myself, wow, okay, I'm 14 and you're telling me this? Like what is going, like we have such a bizarre understanding of church and Christianity that it's now to the point where we, we might as well be talking to people in a different language. It's like, this is what we're talking about church. How do we look at church this way? The creator of the universe loves you so much that he wants to be in a relationship with you. And that he wants to give you a life that is beyond your petty understanding of pleasure and comfort and entitlement and, and all these things. He wants to give you a life that's abundant and that life costs you everything. Everything. Everything that, that what God's calling you costs you everything. And that cost is what we're not willing to give. And I remember, I thought when I was a 14-year-old that I don't want to give God my life because I kind of think God wants me to be unhappy or miserable. Like, I, I, this is what I want to do, but if I give God my life, then he's going to make me do this, and I don't want to do that, so I'm just going to keep this piece of my life. Which brings us to the next part of sanctification, right? Is this idea of being set apart. Something to be holy is taken and it's set apart for God. And that's what holiness looks like. The word sanctification, the set apart, comes from the Old and New Testament. Both the Hebrew word kadash and the uh, Greek word hegiosimos for sanctification convey approximately the same meaning of being set apart, purified, and or concentrated. The primary idea in sanctification is to set apart a separation from what is sinful and attachment to what is righteous. Biblical sanctification does not convey the concept of perfection. The quality belongs to God alone. So, idea of becoming holy is this idea that when you encounter Jesus, yesterday, last year, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, whenever you encounter Jesus, until the day you take your last breath, you are in the process of sanctification. And it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how long you've served God, you're still wrestling, still dealing with stuff. And on your last breath, you will stand before God, then you'll be perfect. You'll be in the, in the presence of your creator, perfect. But not until that time will you, will you understand perfection. So sanctification is this realization that every day we are working through stuff. I'm, I've been a Christian for many years, and I'm still working through stuff. I think the reason God made me marry my wife is she's my personal pastor, and she makes me work through stuff. She's like, my wife will literally say to me, one, uh, just out of the blue, no context for this. We could be eating supper or watching television, and she'll turn to me and say, what's God doing in your life? And I'm like, I, I don't know. Uh, and I try to make something up real quick just to kind of make her happy. But the fact is that she is trying to help me to understand something. And she, and she does it as well too. But that, that God is not done with me. God is not done with you. And that process of sanctification is this process of giving pieces of our lives up to God. So let me show you something here. Once we surrender our lives, that's the die to self, we then offer to God every aspect of our lives, our money, our relationships, our plans for his plans and his purpose. And from that day till the day we die, we are being remade. Now think about this for a second. What piece of your life do you not want to give God? Because that's the piece he really, really wants. The rich young ruler comes to God, to Jesus, and says, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, do these things. And like, yeah, I got that. But what piece of his life do you not want to give God? His money, his wealth. So Jesus looks at him, and the Bible says he loved him, and says, sell everything you have. And come follow me. Because Jesus identified the one piece of his life he wouldn't want to give up. And that's kind of how we bargain with God. God, I'll serve you this much. I'll go to church on Sunday morning. 
and listen to that guy go on for way too long. Or I'll do this, but I'm not going to give you this piece. These relationships, this thing I do, this thing I, I become, this ego that I have, this thing that I, I really place a lot of value in, I don't really want to give that to you. And God's like, that's what you have to give. So what we have to understand about this idea of being sanctified is that before we can be on mission with God, we have to first surrender whatever plans and things we have with God. Now, hear this for a second, okay? We love God. We want to live for God. But there is a cost for that. And Jesus tells us time and time again, it's everything. Right? Remember what he says? Unless you hate mother and father, brother and sister, husband and wife, you cannot be my disciple. And remember, we've looked at that word hate, and in the Hebrew context of it, it's used a couple of times, what it really means is to love less. Every important relationship you have, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, your mother, your father, your siblings, these are all secondary to Jesus. And that every one of them is subservient to God. And if you understand that, then you understand what it means to give up every aspect of your life. So whatever resource God's given you, your time, your talent, and your treasure, they belong to God. And anyone that you hold back, it becomes a spiritual cancer in your life that God can't use you. God's mission, first and foremost, before we get to the world next week, before we get to your community next week, it's in you right now. And when I was preparing this message, one of the things that, one of the images that God gave to me, and I said this in first service, I'll say this to you right now, is sleep. That I believe that there's a lot of Christians who are asleep. You know, in Ephesians, Paul says, um, Awake, O sleeper, let the light of Christ shine upon you. Be very wise how you live, for the days are evil. I believe that what we're seeing in the North American church, because we've abdicated, because we are passive, because we expect God to do something, or the pastor to do something, or a program to do something, or a building to do something, that we stop asking ourselves, what God's asking me to do? What's my mission? And before we talk about what God wants to do through you, you first have to ask what God wants to do in you. And that in you is where the work of the Holy Spirit comes in, where we give up every aspect of our life to God, every part of our life that we think we want to hold back, the good and the bad. We like giving God the good stuff, right? It's like, okay, God, you can have this. I'm pretty proud of this. And God's like, okay, great, but I really want that part there, that deep, dark place that you're hiding. That's the part that I want. You're like, oh, I don't really want to give that. That's the process of what God wants to do in you. That's his mission in you. Before you can be on mission for him out there, Got to be on mission for him right now in you. Let me close here. If you live like you have no mission, you act like it. If you think that everything that God has given you is for yourself, for your own pleasure, for your own comfort, you stop living like you're actually on mission and you forget about what God wants to do through you. And that's the belief and behavior part of our, of our spiritual lives. If we believe that we're going to live forever, and that you know, I'll just, God's okay with this mediocre part of my life, and God's okay with half-hearted or a quarter-hearted, whatever it would be, that if we think that's okay, then we will behave accordingly. Then we will begin to create our own kingdoms. We'll begin to surround ourselves with ourselves. We'll be starting living lives of comfort, and we'll, stop forgetting. we'll forget about what God wants to do through us. If you think you have no mission, you begin to act like it. Jesus, in his resurrection appearances. Now remember, Resurrection Sunday, Pentecost Sunday. That's 50 days. 
So Jesus knows that he only has 49 days approximately to tell the disciples whatever he wants to tell them. So whenever Jesus teaches in a post-resurrection appearance, listen, because he's trying to give us some really good stuff because he knows his time is short. Because he says to his disciples, it's good that I go, the Spirit may come. And he knows the Spirit's coming the day of Pentecost, 50 days later. Jesus appears, oh, did I go back there? Can you uh, bring it back up there? I, uh, um, okay, are we good there? Okay, John twenty twenty one. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing there. Just put it back up there. Um, John 20, 21 says this. And again, Jesus says, peace be with you. Now, watch this, because there's two tensions happening here. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. The first missionary was Jesus, right? Uh, Melissa read it this morning from Corinthians. I like uh, Philippians uh, 2. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God, and said to be grasped, but instead made himself a servant, to be obedient to death, even death upon a cross. That is the sent nature of God. God comes to us. Your mess of your life, your sin, your fallings, your failures, whatever, you, however you want to classify, God reaches out to you. The missionary God comes to you and speaks language of love and grace and mercy and compassion to call you into more. That is the mission of God. That is his work in you. But then he says to us, as I have come to you, so you must go now into the world. Right? It would be one thing for the disciples going, yes, we've met the Messiah, and us 11 and whoever else wants to join us, we're going to sit here in Jerusalem, and we are going to now just love this Jesus thing and just not tell anybody about it, and we're just going to survive until second coming. No, 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 no. That's when the Spirit comes and messes everything up, sends everybody out. And what I love about the Spirit, where do they end up? In the streets. The Spirit comes, they all get excited, and what happens? They spill out in the streets so that everyone can see them. <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if we actually had a service in the uh, Waterloo Square down here, right, in front of everybody? That'd freak me a little bit out, actually. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I'd say half the things I say, but I don't know. We'll see. But the idea is this, is that when the Spirit comes, he takes them, he empowers them, and spills them out in the street. And what happens? The greatest revival, best sermon ever by Peter 3,000 people get added to the church that day. So it goes from 11 to 120 to 3,120 on that day because Peter, empowered by the Spirit, Peter becomes the sent one, right? And it's not just Peter. It's James. It's Paul. It's all of them heading out. And what do they do? I got to tell you about Jesus. I got to tell you about this, this guy, what he did in my life. He's God. He's my Savior. He's everything. And they become the sent ones themselves. We are missionaries. And we are literally missionaries because nobody knows what we're talking about anymore. We, whatever phraseology we use, whatever methodology we use, it's not working. We got to stop hiding behind methodology, buildings, programs, whatever it would be, and start saying, God, how do I take that relationship with, that, with, with a person in my school, with a person at work, and my family, whatever it would be, and say, God, how am I now the sent one to them? How do I now do that? And again, as I said to you before, how do we wake up out of our slumber? I use this analogy in first service. You ever wake up in the morning, maybe like 10 minutes before your alarm, or maybe you don't have an alarm, this one day you don't have to get up out of bed, and you're in bed, it's cozy, and the comforter, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to stay here forever. And then your bladder tells you you can't, and then you got to get up, right? I just feel like that what the Spirit of God wants to do is he wants to take your life, and he wants to rip the covers off of you and saying, get up. Stop being comfortable. Stop looking for your own comfort, your own pleasure. There's a world that's dying out there. And, this is a little uncomfortable, but 
you will be held accountable for what you did with what you had at the time. You will. You are the only Jesus so these people know. And what are you going to do with it? You are the sent one. You are the missionary to these people. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I just want you to take a moment. As we do every week, I just want you to think. I just want you to ponder, reflect. Because I know that once we're dismissed, the world takes over and they rush out. The thing I really want you to think about and the really thing I think that God really wants to impress upon you is I really believe that some of you are asleep in your faith. There's no movement. There's no growth. There's no surrender. There's no spiritual death. I think really what the Lord was trying to tell you is that he's not satisfied with that anymore. And I do believe, and I really want you to know this, I feel this is what the Lord placed upon my heart, is that there's the easy way, and that's the, Lord, I surrender to you, and I want to live for you. And then there's the hard way where God takes your life and turns it upside down to get your attention. In times of distress, in times of pain, in times of suffering, we draw close to God, as, is, as we should. But God wants us to be close to him all the time. He wants us to know that we have a mission, that we are on mission for him in this world. That the gospel is not meant for us alone, but is meant for others as well too. The lost, the dying. We sang this morning that all the poor and powerless. You ever wonder why the poor respond to the gospel? They have nothing else. They have nothing else holding them back. And the kingdom of heaven seems like really good news to a person who has nothing. To us who have everything, to us who, who surround ourselves by everything, the gospel seems like bad news because we don't want to surrender our comfort. We don't want to surrender our agendas. We don't want to surrender our lives. But in Revelation 3, we are told by the angel to the church in Laodicea that we are the poor and powerless and we just don't know it. We are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked and we just don't even know it. God's calling us to more. Holy Spirit, we ask right now that you would come to those who need a swift kick, spiritual kick, do so, Lord. Awaken us to what you want for us, Lord. Lord, those who need encouragement and comfort, I pray, Holy Spirit, you be the God of all comfort to them. Lord, I pray that we would understand, each and every one of us, that you have called us to more, and that more is your life for us, God. You call us into this world. You call us to be missionaries. And Lord, I pray you'd help us give us wisdom and discernment to know when and what language and, and how we do it. But God, I pray we would trust you and obey you and just do it. Live our lives for you as best we can. God, I pray you would help us, you'd encourage us, you'd strengthen us in all good things. And Lord, I pray that that word missionary would be whispered in our hearts and minds this entire week in the grocery store, at school, at work, wherever we are, you would remind us, we are your missionary. We are sent by ascending God to a lost and dying world. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.